Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on November 28th by our Family Life Pastor, Tim Voth. Today is the first sermon in our Advent 2021 sermon series entitled, All That Glitters Is Not Gold. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. All right, so we're starting a new sermon series today and we're calling it, All That Glitters, dot, 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 is not gold. In the Christmas season, there's a lot that glitters, and glitter is fun, and it's dazzling, and it's captivating, but just because something sparkles and shines, it doesn't mean it's actually valuable. Like when I was a kid, I went to Barkersville. If you haven't been there, it's, it was a booming town in the 1800s during the Caribou Gold Rush. It's like, I think, 10 hours north of here, and that's me uh, on the right at six years old. That's my brother on the left and a friend of ours in the middle. Um, somehow I dodged the bull cuts. I don't know how, but uh, I was spared. But yeah, this town, it used to have miners and, and gold panners, panners coming from everywhere, risking their lives, giving everything up to, to come uh, to have a shot at striking gold, at becoming rich. And uh, that's because gold has actual value. That's what they were looking for. And I vaguely remember panning for gold too. And you know, when you pan for gold, you, you find something shiny and you get all excited only to find out that it's fool's gold. And uh, it sparkled, but only fools would think that it was the real deal. And so I was a fool. And I learned the lesson that day that not all that glitters is gold. It was still fun to do, and, and at least I got a hot dog. Clearly, I was, I, was, uh, well, I don't look too happy about that, but it was probably a good hot dog. Um, but it didn't drastically change my life being there because I didn't strike gold. I didn't find real gold. Um, and this Christmas season, we don't want to be distracted by counterfeit gold. Now, all the festivities and warm fuzzies are all great. But the gold, the true value, the true weight of the Christmas season is Jesus. At Christmas, we celebrate literally the most uh, amazing uh, riches of truth that we could ever find that the world has ever known. God come to earth in the flesh. The Son of God, born of a virgin. The incarnation. God has come to his creatures to rescue them. That's the gold, and we don't want to miss it this Christmas season. Gold is easy to miss. It's often hidden and buried deep beneath the earth, and it isn't always obvious. But when you find gold, and you clean it off and polish it and hold it out for people to see, it actually shines deeper and brighter than any glitter. And so we want to be a church. We want to be individuals that puts that gold right in the center of our lives. That values Jesus more than anything. We want to take stock. Am I satisfied with glitter? Or am I really seeking gold like a panner giving up everything to get to the gold rush? So we're not against the festivities. Not at all. I, I love the warm fuzzies at Christmas as much as anyone. They're, they're great. And no one up here is going to be a Grinch to tell you to stop all of the festivities. That's not the point. Instead, we're going to look at five topics we can all relate to during Christmas and look for the gold in them that makes them truly shine. And so this morning, I'm going to talk about tradition. Tradition. Christmas traditions. I'm sure we all have them, and, and we on staff has, have them as well. And so we've put together a little video of our favorite traditions for you, because why not? We all need a little bit of Christmas cheer. So uh, let's enjoy this video together. My favorite 
favorite Christmas tradition is after church on Christmas Eve, eating delicious appetizers together. My um, Christmas tradition is that we always go together and build gingerbread houses. My, my Christmas tradition is opening presents on the morning. My favorite Christmas tradition is having a really, really, really ugly fake Christmas tree where we put all of the decorations on one side. I love decorating the Christmas tree. And I love food. I love Christmas dinner with family. I like the mangoes that come out at Christmas. Ooh, I love mangoes. Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I like Christmas carols. I like decorating Christmas cookies. Merry Christmas. My favorite Christmas tradition is playing music uh, when all my cousins come to visit uh, after or before Christmas. My favorite tradition has always been to Spend time with family on Christmas Eve and go to the Christmas Eve service and sometimes open a few gifts. My favorite family tradition is that we would take baby Jesus from our nativity scene, wrap him up, and put him under the tree for Christmas morning. And on Christmas Day, it would be the first gift that we would open to help us remember the true meaning behind Christmas. And my favorite Christmas tradition is how prior to opening any present, the person who's going to open the present has to either recite a memory verse or uh, sing part of a Christmas song or say something that they're thankful for. I, I uh, love candy canes and Christmas lights. What's yours, Micah? And um, mine's making the gingerbread houses. And mine is chopping down the Christmas tree and putting on the ornaments. And mine is making reindeer pancakes for breakfast on Christmas morning. What's yours, Dad? Mine is making a boiling pot of wassail. Mm. <laughs> My favorite tradition is putting up the Christmas tree, tree early because you get the Christmas spirit earlier. Mine's the Christmas cookies because they taste so good. Mine. I love listening to Christmas music because it just is so uplifting. My favorite part about Christmas is the gingerbread pot. And my favorite tradition during Christmas is watching Christmas movies, but not the really low-budget Hallmark Christmas movies because they're terrible acting. I love those. But like the really good ones like Elf and things like that, so yeah. When I was a kid, my favorite tradition was waking up Christmas morning and running to the living room and seeing the full stockings hanging behind the fireplace. Well, for sure, my favorite Christmas tradition was on Christmas morning waking up and the stocking was hung at the foot of your bed. You didn't have to wait for anyone to wake up. You could open it right away. By far, that's the best Christmas tradition. Well, we all know whose tradition is better. Let's ask our kids. See what I have to contend with. They don't live here anymore. <laughs> So Christmas traditions. Maybe you can relate to some of those. We, we all have Christmas traditions and they can do so much good in, in bringing us together and centering us around some sort of repeated event that we can anticipate. And what I'd like to do is look at traditions in general and explore what Jesus has to say about them and how what he says is significant for our lives during this season. And so we're going to look at a story found in Mark 2 verse 18 to 22 where Jesus answers someone's question about certain traditions. I think a lot of clashes in our society happen because of this, this tension between um, traditions. 
this tension can happen in our churches, in our society, and in us uh, ourselves. And I think we all want to live lives deeply connected to what is objectively true throughout the ages, and yet we all feel a constant need for renewal. At their best, traditions are great as, as anchors to, in an ever-changing world to connect us to, to ancient truth. But at their worst, they're empty routines that can become burdens and even detract from the truth they're trying to preserve. And so I think this passage in Mark has significance for us because it speaks into this tension and holds a message of renewal and refreshment for all of us going into this season. So, okay, the text. To set up the context, Jesus has begun his ministry and he's claiming that the kingdom of God is here. And there are people who obey the Old Testament law and go even go above and beyond it and follow the traditions of the elders. But Jesus doesn't seem to be following these traditions and so they begin to question him. And so we jump into one of these interactions where they're questioning him in chapter 2, verse 18, which says this. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So these people, it doesn't say who, are asking Jesus about fasting. And in this case, I think we can use fasting as a bit of a case study for traditions in general. The Pharisees, this super religious group of devout Jews in in Jesus' day, they would fast twice a week. And while fasting wasn't actually, uh, uh, this type of fasting wasn't actually a part of the law of Moses, it was tradition that they would fast. And John, the guy who lived in the wilderness and ate locusts, even he fasted like the Pharisees. I would probably choose to fast over eating locusts as well. But in any case, he fasted. He was even very devout like them as well. And, and Jesus wasn't fasting, though. He was feasting. He was you know, eating a ton with his disciples. He was, they were celebrating. And to rub salt in the wounds, he was feasting with sinners. It wasn't just him and his disciples eating. Uh, it, was, it was all sorts of uh, people that the Pharisees would have considered sinful and lowly. Um, And on the day of the fast, literally everyone knows it's a fasting day for the religious people. And suddenly this Messiah is gorging himself. Like imagine if we planned a church-wide fasting day and we all got together at the end of the day for for solemn prayer. And, you know, everyone in our congregation knew this this day was here. We had put it on the website. We had announced it. It's it's church-wide fasting day. And imagine we're there in our in our prayer group and someone kicks open the door with 10 pizzas and they have a party hat on and they say, let's all eat pizza for everyone. And they bring in all of their obnoxious friends. <laughs> we would think, what the he- what's happening? And we would think, who do you think you are? Uh, and that's exactly what I think the Pharisees were feeling. And that's what they were asking. Who do you think you are? And, and Jesus, you know, He is who he says he is later on in the passage. But here they must be questioning, you know, you're not fasting. Are you making some sort of a statement? Are you somehow ignorant of what day it is? Or worse, do you know and you just don't care? Do you reject the traditions of the elders? Or maybe you just don't care and you're not as pious as us and you can't even control your appetite. Whatever the reason, it's extremely inappropriate to be eating right now and it's going against their tradition. Why are you fasting? Why are you not fasting, they ask. Now listen to how Jesus answers. He flips the whole situation on its head. 
it's not inappropriate for him to be eating. It's inappropriate for them to be fasting. He isn't ignorant of what day it is. They are ignorant of who he is. So listen to this. He says, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom, they cannot fast. So Jesus isn't just some rebel breaking the traditions because he doesn't like them like some anarchist. He's saying something totally different. His analogy changes everything. Instead of thinking of him as crashing church fasting day, suddenly in his framework, they are crashing the wedding with a fasting mandate. I'm sure most of us have been to weddings. I mean, imagine the joy killer would be if you're at a wedding, you're celebrating, you're, you're in the middle of eating and someone breaks through the door and says, hey, hey, stop, everyone, stop, stop, stop. We shouldn't be celebrating, we should be fasting. This isn't honoring God what we're doing. We need to be solemn, we need to be praying, we need to be fasting, and then that would be pleasing to God. Like that, that they would be so out of touch with the context of what's happening uh, that they would be super inappropriate. And Jesus is saying that's what's happening with the Pharisees and John's disciples. Their tradition has made them completely misunderstand the picture. Sure, there's the tradition, but that's all glitter. If you knew the gold was here, you'd give it all up. The traditions pointed to a fulfillment one day. They held a place, almost like a a, a morning star holding the light in the sky until the sun dawns. But when the sun comes, the stars fade. Jesus is here, and he's saying that his presence fulfills what their traditions point to. So they're no longer in a conversation about tradition, uh, but about Jesus' identity. And if Jesus is who he says he is, then everything is new. So one of the helpful things that can help us when reading the Bible is to just simply read the sections before it and after the text that we're looking at, and that's just, it's just called the context. And so doing that, In this situation, it's pretty illuminating. In Mark, this story is in the middle of five instances where people are questioning Jesus' actions and practices and ultimately his identity. In the first instance, Jesus forgives someone's sins, and they all wonder, I thought only God could forgive sins. Hmm. The next section, they're wondering, why is he eating with sinners? And he responds by saying he's the physician. He's come for the sick. God refers to himself as Israel's healer in Exodus and in the Psalms. Hmm. In the story after this one, they wonder why Jesus is doing things on the Sabbath day that they didn't think were lawful in their traditions, and he calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Interesting. And then in the final one, he actually questions them. Is it better to do good or evil on the Sabbath? And they don't answer him. Hmm. He heals someone on the Sabbath, and their reaction says it all. In these five sections, they have gone from questioning to annoyed to planning to kill Jesus. And right in the middle of it all is our passage here this morning. And it's all pointing to the fact that Jesus is claiming to be God in the flesh. Who can forgive sins? God. Who's the great healer? God. Who's the Lord of the Sabbath? God is. And here in this passage, who is the bridegroom? God is. Throughout the Old Testament, God refers to himself as Israel's bridegroom, their husband. Bridegroom actually isn't really language used about the Messiah, usually. They wouldn't have thought of the Messiah in this language 
but they would have thought of God in this language. And what he's saying is that he is their God. And their God has finally come. They should be celebrating like it's a wedding. They should be celebrating like it's Christmas morning. Something better than their version of the Messiah is here. God is with them. And because he is God, he has the authority to revitalize and fulfill his own laws and their traditions about him. He's literally in their presence and they missed him. They were too entranced with the traditions to notice the God to whom all of their traditions supposedly centered around. They were distracted by the glitter and they missed the gold. And I think we can do that too, can't we? We can do that as a church and we can do that in our own individual lives. You know, we find the truth or we have an experience of something meaningful. And so we try to set up traditions or patterns or routines around the truth in order to preserve it. But what happens when the truth moves? What happens when God is doing a new thing like he is here? Well, then our traditions, if they don't move along with God, can become empty, shallow routines and actions that no longer affirm the truth, but actually work against it. Like how we already saw in the, in the following passage right after this one we're, we're looking at, Jesus uses the Sabbath how it was meant to be used. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the same could be said of traditions. Traditions were made for man, not man for traditions. If we get that relationship correct, then church traditions can be wonderful things. But if we get it backwards, they can become meaningless burdens. And you know, we're here as the church because for 2,000 years, faithful Christians have carried the torch to future generations. There's a rich church tradition that we can learn from and quite frankly should learn more from. When we acknowledge that, it causes humility and deep learning. But any church tradition, even ours, can become empty and lose its meaning and purpose. Like someone becoming enamored with a bucket that they once used to scoop up water and bring it to people who are thirsty and now they just obsess over how the bucket looks. Or, or people who used to use their boats to help people who have dashed against the rocks and save them from drowning. Maybe they get a few more yachts and they form a yacht club and now they just compare yachts and they forget about the people who are drowning out there. Or a church who becomes inward focused and, and maybe becomes too meticulous about small minutia of doctrine and policy and, and becomes obsessed with those things and suddenly forgets its, its calling to be missional, to look outward, to follow the Great Commission, to, to go out into the world like Jesus and, and eat with the sinners and go and seek the, the people who are broken and sinful and, and make disciples of all the nations. Churches can stagnate. And I think this can happen to us as a church and our denominations and us as a specific church. And I think one of the best defenses against that is if we ourselves as individuals are, are being revitalized by Jesus bringing newness to us and then us bringing newness to our community, our church community. I think that's the best defense against traditions stagnating and us turning just traditions into empty burdens. And so when thinking of traditions, we shouldn't just think collectively, but of our own routines, our own habits, our own patterns and thoughts and beliefs and so on. I think one of the reasons that this passage has been hitting so close these days is because of my own spiritual life. 
Maybe you're like me where you've had encounters with God in prayer and his word. He speaks to you and he transforms you. But sometimes the same avenues that were once vessels for hearing God's voice become stale and empty, even burdensome. Like when I was a younger Christian, uh, I used to read a lot of the great spiritual classics and, and saints of old and, uh, uh, and try to emulate them in their prayer lives and in their devotional lives. And so, you know, I would get up super early and, and pray and read for, for hours. Um, and it was super tiring, but God used it to shape me. But as my life situation started to change, you know, and I started to have kids and was already sleep deprived, I began to feel guilty that it was way harder to get up early in the morning. I still tried for a time, but it affected my mood and my energy and my ability to work well in a construction job. It became a burden. And isn't it strange how we can turn spiritual practices meant to help us into burdens that hinder us so quickly? And I still feel that guilt sometimes these days. I now have four kids, and let me tell you, There's no way that I'm getting up at 5 a.m. to pray when I was just up at 4 a.m. with one of them crying. I mean, you can call me unpious. That's that's totally fine. But compounded on top of that, guilt can be a general sense of malaise and spiritual apathy and discouragement. I can feel my old traditions of how I used to be in relationship with God no longer working. And I can feel stultified and empty and burdened. Not only so, but I think with the ever-changing landscape of COVID, of of things being uncertain, of routines and patterns always changing, I can grow tired and apathetic. I can sense the empty routines, and I want renewal. To be refreshed, to experience a deep relationship with God once again. I want to join the party. I want to, to be in there with Jesus celebrating at the wedding feast with the bridegroom. I don't want to be stuck with the Pharisees in their empty tradition. And maybe you can relate to that. And maybe that's why this next part is, is so meaningful for me lately. Jesus goes on to say, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. And so he changes metaphors now. They were ruining the party because they were trying to fast during the wedding. Now Jesus once again uses an analogy that puts his identity at the center. He's a new patch. He is new wine. In each case, there's a problem and a solution. The, The unshrunk cloth, the old ways, the old traditions are like tattered clothes. They once served a purpose, but they're worn out. What's the best solution? Get new garments. Get new clothes. Don't be so frugal. You know, my wife um, can attest that I literally never buy new clothes for myself. So maybe this passage is a rebuke to me. But Jesus isn't some addition to their old system. If they try to shove this new thing that God is doing, his incarnation and his inauguration of the, the kingdom of God, of the new covenant, If they try to shove that into their old understanding of Judaism, it will wreck it and leave them frustrated. So then he refers to himself as new wine, which is usually a celebratory drink at weddings. Back in those days, they would use animal skins to hold wine. And since wine is a fermented drink, when the new wine was put into vessels, it would expand. 
And if the vessel is already old and worn out, the expansion would, would make a tear, and once again, both things would be ruined. The solution? Get new wineskins. I remember when I was doing stonemasonry, we would mix concrete in buckets, and sometimes we'd forget to clean the buckets out at the end of the day, and the next day we'd look at them, and they'd be just caked in hard concrete on the inside, and sometimes we'd leave tools in there by accident, and it was all messy and, and not, a good, not a good thing, and so... We would try to salvage the buckets either by hammering all the concrete out or we would just say, oh, forget it. We'll, um, we'll just mix new concrete in there anyways. But the new concrete would just have big chunks of old concrete in it and it wasn't even usable. It would wreck the new concrete. And when we tried to uh, chip out the concrete, it would just break the buckets and they'd have big holes. And so the only solution was, okay, let's just bite the bullet tell our boss we made a mistake, drive to Canix, get new buckets, uh, take the time and money. It's more annoying, but it's the best solution. So go get new buckets, and then we can actually do our job properly. So that's what we needed to do. And ultimately, they needed new wineskins. If they couldn't let go of their traditions and allow Jesus to be the fulfillment of them, they would miss it. And ultimately, they themselves needed to be new wineskins. As James Edwards says in his commentary on Mark, the question posed by the image of the wedding feast and the two parables is not whether disciples will make room for Jesus in their already full agendas and lives. The question is whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives. And I think that's what we want, isn't it? Even if it's challenging, even if it's hard, even if we burst at the seams, we want newness of life. We want Jesus. We don't just want shallow glitter. We don't want broken wineskins. We don't want old, empty, burdensome traditions. We want valuable gold. We want new wineskins, fresh wineskins. We want traditions that are revitalized and new and meaningful. And that's what Jesus seems to offer us. But it comes with a catch. Are you willing to depart with your old, empty ways? I think we feel this when we're being drawn to believe in Jesus and also for the rest of our lives as Christians. I remember when I was on the cusp of turning my life over to Jesus back in my teen years, I was seeking him and, and reading the Bible and I happened to read this in Ephesians. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. I literally remember thinking, I think I need to give my life to Jesus, but I'm scared to because I'll have to give up things in my life that I've always known. Foolish talk, crude joking. How could I depart from those things? That would be like departing from like 50% of my vocabulary at the time. Like change how I talk? It, it sounds so shallow and, and silly now, but I couldn't picture my life without compulsive lying and obscene humor. How could I relate to my friends? It was a small and, and simple but very real barrier to let go of, of that and to take hold of the new life that Jesus wanted for me. But if Jesus is truly God with us, if that's his identity, like he's saying in this passage, then surely the God who created me and is with me will know what is best for me to let go of and to take hold of. And as Christians, are we willing to let go of our old forms of, of empty piety and dead ritual in order to take hold of how the new thing that Jesus might be wanting to speak to us 
and, and use us, the new ways he might want to be using us and transforming us. I think there are many even psychological and emotional or spiritual patterns that prevent us from experiencing his newness. So let's take the idea of guilt in devotions, like I was talking about earlier as a bit of a case study. Maybe we feel constantly guilty in our relationship with God for not doing enough. If we try to fit Jesus into that old wineskin model of thinking, we're just going to use him to help us feel better about ourselves and we'll miss what he actually wants to do in our lives. Like it'll wreck both. Like we'll just feel more guilty or we'll just use Jesus as some sort of thing to make us not feel guilty and we'll miss what he's doing. So it'll wreck both. Like maybe if we always feel guilty and or burdened by an attitude of I should pray more, I should read more mentality, we should actually let that go. Maybe that's the new wineskin he might want to give us, a fresh understanding of how God relates to us, a fresh understanding of his identity as God with us, not God distant until I do A, B, and C. In this new understanding, devotion and discipline become freeing. We don't need to feel bound to a a pattern we've always used to interact with God. If Bible reading has felt like it's become stale, Try listening through an app. Maybe do a Bible study with other people. Maybe just slow down and, and, and don't feel like you have to read three chapters a day. Maybe just a verse. Maybe praying at a different time. Maybe experimenting with other spiritual disciplines like solitude or, or journaling or fasting or singing or celebration or community. You know, it's interesting. All of, all of these disciplines are ancient and have been practiced for thousands of years and yet God can use them to bring about renewal in our lives. Maybe think through your devotional life and think through what might be life-giving and try it. But that's just one example of personal wineskins. There may be other patterns in your life that God might want you to let go of so that you can experience him afresh. And it's not as if Jesus says we'll never do spiritual disciplines again. In in the verse right in the middle of our text here, uh, he says this. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. He's, he's probably referring to his death or his arrest and his death and his ascension where he's no longer with them in the same way as when he walked the earth. And so we fast, but not like the Pharisees. Now our fasting, our rituals are centered around Jesus and they aren't a display to others, but are acts of devotion to Jesus. So traditions continued in the early church, but they were revitalized because they knew Jesus was God with them. Okay, so landing all of this. We we don't want to be people enamored by old wineskins and glitter and empty tradition. We want to be people of new wineskins, of gold, of revitalized traditions. And the way that happens is by seeking Jesus and surrendering to him. By seeking Jesus like the people who came And we're asking him questions. They're seeking. They're trying to understand. And then surrendering to him. But not like the Pharisees who were seeking him, trying to understand, and slowly became agitated and wanted to kill him. But rather seeking and surrendering. Coming to know who Jesus is and then surrendering to him. And bringing it back to Christmas traditions, I think when we're doing that, our Christmas traditions are given new life. Like, let me give you one example of that in my own life recently. 
The week before last week, after all the kids were in bed, I went out for a night walk, which is actually my new way that I enjoy interacting with God these days, and it's a meaningful time, and there's, there's really fresh times of prayer for me when I'm doing that. Okay, but I was praying. I was seeking God, sincerely seeking Jesus, trying to grapple with these floods that are happening, asking God why, trying to think through scripture, asking him, where are you in all of this? Needing a fresh perspective of him, needing to hear him, asking, seeking, knocking. And as I was praying, walking the streets of Promontory, there was a house that had their Christmas lights up in November like crazy people. Uh, But I can't express how hard it hit me seeing those lights in light of what I was thinking through. Jesus, the light of the world, shining right in the middle of darkness. That's what Christmas lights are traditionally meant to represent. That's who God is in all of this. Emmanuel, God with us. He's not far off. He's not aloof. He came into this world to experience the suffering we face. He came to bear it all and to be a loving, compassionate, powerful presence to everyone who now suffers and trusts him through it. The identity of Jesus as God with us renewed my vision and even revitalized an old tradition like setting up lights. It reminds me of this verse. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. It's like we're looking for gold, but God actually isn't that hard to find. It's not like you have to sell everything and move to the caribou and, and go and pan for gold for hours and days and months and weeks and years. It's, God, God is actually very close. You can find him exactly where you are right now or, or in the week, wherever you are, by simply calling out to him. Jesus wants you to know him. Jesus wants to be found by you. So this Christmas season, Jesus wants to do something new in your life. Maybe you have traditions that you love, like the video of our staff. Um, if, If you're seeking God and surrendering to Jesus as Emmanuel, making him the center of your life, then those traditions will come alive. They won't just glitter. They won't just be old wineskins. They'll be gold. If some traditions are worn out and You know, make new ones. If you love the ones you have, let Jesus shine through them and even use your traditions to bless the people around you. Like at Sardis, we have a tradition of the first Monday of every month, we do like a prayer and fasting day. Um, And and not tomorrow, not this Monday, but the next Monday, we're going to do a prayer day and it's going to be focused on our neighbors, our immediate neighbors, you know, baking cookies for them, bringing them cards, just getting to know them. And so we're turning a tradition outward and making it about uh, looking outward, being missional. And so we can take traditions and revitalize them. You know, young families, if you don't have traditions, make new traditions. Find ways to make Jesus the center of all that you do. Angela, one of our Sardis Kids coordinators, made these awesome devotional Advent calendars uh, packages for young families. I believe the deadline is, is over for them, but... They are a great way to start a new tradition. And Focus on the Family has a lot of fun family ideas too. Make it fun. Bring it to life. Help your kids see Jesus in all that you do. From the trees, to the lights, to the colors, to the decorations, to the meals. These all actually do have deep historical meaning and you can rediscover them. But what if our traditions themselves have been disrupted? 
there's so much going on in our world and locally that has an impact on our traditions. If our traditions are dashed, if we can't do what we once did, what do we do? Like one really, really minor example is that our family has always gone to toy traders in Langley in November with the kids to go look at the toys and see what ones they might actually want for Christmas. Um, but that couldn't happen this year because of the roads. Or maybe all of our Amazon uh, Christmas gifts that we've purchased won't get shipped to us in time. You know, and there's many in our community who have it way, way worse than that. That's just a small, minor example. Maybe your house got flooded or your farm. I mean, think of the devastation. Their Christmas won't look normal. And we're still in COVID. COVID has made everything different. Or maybe you're older, maybe even shut in, and you can't do any of the traditions you once used to do with your family. Or maybe a relationship has changed or broken within your family or friends in the past year, like a marriage ending or, or a falling out, and it's, it's going to make Christmas look different this year. Or maybe this is your first Christmas after experiencing loss. Maybe you've lost a loved one, and this will be the first Christmas without them. And the traditions you're used to won't be possible without them here, or at least it will be a painful reminder of their absence. What do we do? Once again, in all these things, we seek Jesus as Emmanuel. Is God still the same God when our lives change so drastically? Yes. He's still the God who answers when we knock. And more than that, he's still the God who seeks us. Christmas was never about tradition. It was always about Jesus, the one who came to seek and find us. God is still God, and he might just be using these things, taking away the glitter, bursting our wineskins, to point us to the gold of Jesus once again. It's never too late to begin again. And we don't need to be afraid or frustrated because we can trust that what Jesus has for us, this new wine, whatever is ahead, whatever he's doing, if we are seeking and surrendering, will ultimately be for our good and for his glory. And so I'll close with a prayer that I wrote back in October. Let's pray together. Lord, as our old selves painfully tear and burst, would you help us to let go of the old skins and rags, and would you so rejuvenate and recreate us that we can be new vessels, able to be filled with and enjoy the new wine, the new work, the new everything that you want to fill us with today. Amen. And so I'm going to end our time here with some discussion questions that you can uh, think through and talk through together. One, what are the good things about tradition that you've experienced? Any not-so-good things? What is it that makes the difference? Two, which traditions at Christmas are most meaningful for you? Which ones do you see the gold of Jesus shining through the most? Are there any new traditions you'd like to start? Three, which specific areas in your own personal walk with God might need revitalization? How could seeking and, and surrendering help that happen? Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.